Hey Keystone, I want to welcome you to what is essentially our eighth exclusively online worship experience. Uh, praying uh, for you while this time exists, uh, that God would continue to open your eyes uh, to the glories of Christ, uh, that even in the midst of what are uh, unprecedented, unparalleled, pick your adjective that you've heard everyone describe this season as, uh, that even in that moment, uh, that God is showing you more of himself, uh, exposing areas where you might be able to experience growth, um, where you can develop more faith uh, to trust him more, uh, and that he is being faithful to supply you with all that you need. Uh, as we head into um, uh, the next few months, I want to uh, share with you uh, that the elders are keeping our eyes on uh, what it will be for us to reopen. Uh, depending upon uh, CDC recommendations, uh, local government official recommendations, we will be looking to uh, one day be able to join together, and we are excited about that day. Given circumstances where they are now, um, our intention is to continue in this online environment uh, for as long as we think that it's safe uh, for large-scale people. Now, there are probably a lot of people who are like, we want to get together. Uh, and I, I would encourage you, we want to be guided by love and concern for those in our uh, community and in our church. And so there's a passage in the scriptures that says, simply because something's permissible doesn't mean that it's helpful. Or maybe to say it another way, just because we have the right to do it does not mean that it might be the right thing to do. And so I would encourage you to continue to be praying uh, for us as leaders, to, for us to know how and when to begin to gather together as a local family. Uh, it is making decisions hard for us, looking particularly into the summer. Some of you should have gotten an email this week uh, that made the announcement that we have chosen to not do VBS in our traditional format. And I know that that breaks the hearts of a lot of volunteers and a lot of kids and a lot of people in the community who look forward to Keystone's VBS. Our option in this season to avoid large gatherings, at least at this point, is to do what we're calling a staycation Bible school. You'll see more information coming out, uh, but we're continuing to run VBS uh, during the same times, uh, June 27th through July 2nd. There'll be more information coming out about that kind of uh, event, um, and so I would encourage you to keep uh, tabs on our website, keystonechurch.org, uh, as well as just keep a lookout for emails that will be coming out in the future. This morning's message, uh, I've been asked from Pastor Keith to inform you as parents that there are some mature themes uh, that we will talk about uh, related to um, personal safety and the use of um, firearms. Though you might uh, find this content to be um, unsuitable for certain people in your household, uh, my encouragement for you is to consider that these are real-life issues, and the scriptures give us wisdom and direction as we face real-life issues. Uh, and so if you're uh, uncertain about the text and uncertain about um, whether this would be appropriate for your younger kids, uh, we'd encourage you to watch the message, maybe by yourself, and then come back and watch it once you see um, what the content actually is. As we head into worship, I want to pray for us uh, that God would continue to use his word and his spirit to give us the power and the pattern uh, to be able to bring our lives into alignment with his. And so would you join me in praying? 
Father, we ask that you would give us the encouragement and the endurance that we need, that we would be united as a church, that as we move forward, we might be able to glorify you with one heart, one mouth. And Father, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit to be able to know your word, to love your word, and to be shaped by your word. Father, we ask that you would bring wisdom to us as a body, that our elders would know how to plan and how to um, love the church well during this time. Lord, we ask that you would supply us with the encouragement we need uh, during disappointments, um, during frustrations. Lord, we ask that you would continue to bring healing to those who've been affected by the virus, whether uh, it is economic uh, or whether it is health-related. Lord, thank you for the common grace of government who has been able to provide a protection for us. Father, I pray that you would also guard us from putting all hope in the government to do all things and protect us in all ways, that you would be our rock, that you would be our salvation, uh, that you would be the one who um, gives us reason to have hope and peace and joy as we trust in you. So Father, as we head into worship, uh, I pray that you would open our eyes continually to see you as glorious and wonderful. In Jesus' name, amen. In Paris, France, there's a famous theater that was built during the American Civil War. It has a long storied history, hosted performers from all over the world. For the last 50 years, though, it's pretty much just been a rock concert venue. And on November 13th, 2015, ISIS terrorists uh, targeted five different locations in Paris that night, cafes, soccer stadium, and the theater known as the Bataclan. Until it was all over, three terrorists had entered the theater armed automatic rifles and wearing suicide vests. Uh, until the police had arrived on the scene and rushed into the building, there were 89 dead and scores more had been injured. A writer for the Atlantic uh, magazine on the three-year anniversary of those attacks said, I think back on that Friday evening in November and vividly remember the feeling of learning about the attacks through Twitter and television. And she said, a feeling of resignation mixed with a desire for immediate action, of wanting to do something, was what she thought about most. That night across uh, Paris, uh, 130 people died. Over 400 were wounded, some of them critically. And I guess I felt a little bit like uh, Rachel Donatio, the writer of that piece in The Atlantic. I, I thought and I thought and I thought about those attacks that night for really for months. Um, I'm a news junkie and I'd followed terrorist attacks for 30 years, U.S. and around the world. And none, for some reason, hit me quite like that attack on the Bataclan. And the more I thought about it, the more I wondered, what if one or two or three people had been armed in that theater that night. Might there have been a lot um, fewer people that would have been killed? Would there have been some more people who could have gone home to their families that night? And eventually, um, I decided that I was going to purchase a pistol, 
um, and I was going to get a concealed carry permit, kind of as a result of those thoughts. Well, my wife will tell you I don't purchase things very quickly. I do a lot of research, and it took me about two years just to decide uh, what gun I was going to buy. By that time, I was having some health problems, and I decided, you know, between my age and those health problems, I might do more harm than good in a crisis situation. So I never did, um, never did pursue that. Uh, but my sermon today, would Jesus get a concealed carry permit? I, to be honest, has gotten me to th thinking about that again. Now you might wonder, are we really still in the Gospel of Luke? And we are. Uh, we're talking uh, today about a couple of things that Jesus said uh, to his disciples hours apart, which seem to be somewhat contradictory at first glance. And so we're going to uh, look at those things that Jesus said and, and talk about some of the implications. Uh, I want to say to you parents, first of all, the, the theme we're talking about this morning is kind of a mature one, and you may choose not to have your children watch that or perhaps uh, put this on pause and uh, you and your uh, teenagers come back and, and watch it later. Our text is Luke chapter 22, and we're going to start reading at verse 47, and uh, we'll look back at the earlier text to contrast that in uh, just a bit after we get started. Luke chapter 22, verse 47. <clears throat> 47. Now this has been right after Jesus and his men were in the garden praying. Well, Jesus was praying, they were sleeping. But even as Jesus said this, a crowd approached, led by Judas, one of the 12 disciples. Judas walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When the other disciples saw what was about to happen, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords. And one of them struck at the high priest's slave, slashing off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. And then Jesus spoke to the leading priests, the captains of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him. Am I some dangerous revolutionary, he said, that you would come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every day. But this is your moment, the time when the power of darkness reigns. Father, as we look over the shoulder of Jesus and we see off to perhaps his right group of 11 men, die-hard followers, they're all in, ready to go to prison with him, ready to die with him. And then he sees over here a former follower he thought was loyal, who has sold him out for money. And over here, the religious elite, uh, the people who call the shots for the Jews, and next to them, the paramilitary types there to carry out their orders, well-armed with spears and swords. We wonder at first what's going to happen. Is there going to be a violent confrontation? Is this going to be the beginning of the end for Jesus? Is this going to be the beginning of the beginning for Jesus. And there are things that are no doubt going through the disciples' minds that um, have them wondering, what's their role right now? What should I be doing right now? Should, should, should we go to war for our leader? 
Should we defend him? Should we lay down our lives for him? And yet Jesus makes it clear what is about to happen has been planned all eternity. And we're so grateful that Jesus um, finished that agonizing battle in the garden just hour before, shortly before. We're beginning with a plea for his father to have some other plan, but ending with, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So, so grateful that Jesus followed through with what you had planned for him, not only that night, but really for all of us, for all eternity. And I pray for our conversation this morning, Lord, that um, first of all, I pray mostly that it will be faithful to the text, help us to be careful not to read into uh, nor ignore what is there. Uh, help us to come away with a balanced understanding of, uh, of your, how you treasure life and, uh, and that we might treasure it as well. And for people that perhaps are going to maybe make different plans than they have as a result of this, I pray for great biblical Holy Spirit-shaped and driven wisdom. And I pray against the enemy who hates you, he hates your plan, he hates your people. In fact, he hates all people. How different from your love for us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I brought this, uh, or someone loaned me this gun for this morning. Uh, and by the way, it's not loaded. That's been verified by five different people. Uh, I wouldn't do this if we were all together on a Sunday morning, but there's uh, just four of us here this morning. And uh, I brought this along to illustrate uh, that what we're talking about this morning is not abstract. Uh, we're talking about um, people's lives being at stake. And we know from Scripture that um, people matter to God. We, we, unlike the rest of creation, we have been made in God. God's image, every last one of us. And because of that, we matter to God in an, an exceptional way. And so we're, we're talking about human lives this morning, and that's, um, we're talking about the lives of people who have been or will be victimized by others. And we're also talking about the lives of the perpetrators, those who uh, victimize others. And the lives of both categories matter to God. People matter to God. Now, a couple disclaimers. This message is not a message on the Second Amendment or what rights we actually have as Americans when it comes to gun ownership and gun carrying or what rights we should have. It's also not a message on pacifism. Uh, we've had them before. Uh, we're not here to discuss whether or not uh, it's appropriate to serve in the military or in the police force. We have a number of police officers here at Keystone in our church. Uh, we have numerous people who've served in the military. Um, many of you know my own son uh, served in the United States Army for 11 years. Uh, these, these are, we're going to make some assumptions this morning to have our discussion. And one would be that uh, certainly God has uh, authorized people in government for the defense of the people and to administer judgment, uh, justice, uh, Romans 13, 4 especially. Here's a summation, though, of what we are going to be after this morning. We're going to ask, try to ask and answer the question, can a follower of Jesus be armed, 
prepared to use that weapon on someone and still be faithful to Jesus. Can a follower of Jesus be armed, be prepared to use that weapon on someone and still be faithful to Jesus? Now, the text that we read just earlier, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Now, that, if we just take that all by itself, we could hear Jesus saying, you, sh you shouldn't be using a sword. You should never uh, pull a sword on someone, try to hurt them. And we might end up misunderstanding this if we don't integrate what he said to the disciples uh, just a few hours before. So let's jump up to earlier in Luke 22 to verse 35. So this would have been a conversation Jesus had with his disciples just before they left uh, the place where they had celebrated the Passover meal for the last time together uh, and celebrated the first communion meal. Verse 35, Then Jesus asked his disciples, When I sent you out to preach the good news and you did not have money, a traveler's bag, or an extra pair of sandals, did you need anything? No, they replied. And you could go back to Luke chapter 9 and see the first time Jesus had sent these men out to do independent ministry when he wasn't with them. And he gave them authority to cast out demons, to heal people, uh, to raise the dead. And they came back and were amazed at all they had been able to do. But Jesus had instructed them when they went out, they weren't to take money with them. They weren't to take other supplies and gear. Rather, they were to go into these villages, many of them, uh, most of them, which would have had uh, primarily Jewish populations, and seek out someone who would be receptive to them, someone who would host them, someone who would feed them, take care of them. And that was the instructions for then. Now Jesus goes on, verse 36 says, but now, so there's a page being turned. He's moving on to something else. This is something different than he sent them out on in Luke 9. But now, he said, take your money and a traveler's bag, and if you don't have a sword, Sell your cloak and buy one. For the time has come for this prophecy about me to be fulfilled. He was counted among the rebels. Yes, everything written about me by the prophets will come true. Look, Lord, they replied, we have two swords among us. That's enough, he said. Now, that is a curious um, conversation that Jesus has. And it's interesting it's not one that is recounted for us by any of the other gospel writers. You might even say, uh, depending on how you think about things like this, you might even say, why did the disciples even have any swords among them? Wouldn't Jesus have kind of beat that out of them in the last three and a half years if it was Jesus' mindset that you shouldn't have weapons like this? Now, before we talk about the two arguments I think Jesus gives in the passage, for uh, having swords, I wanna talk about two common in interpretations in this text that I think are wrong. And, and I, I say this because the vast majority of scholars uh, believe this, and I, I just can't agree with it. Uh, one is that the sword that Jesus is talking about is not a literal sword. So when he says, um, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one, he's not talking about something with sharp-edged steel. But rather, he's talking metaphorically. Uh, he's talking about the kind of Ephesians 6, 10 and following uh, message where our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against uh, rulers and principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And therefore, put on the full armor of God, you know, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, 
the belt of truth, and so on and so on. And so that Jesus wasn't really talking about a physical sword, a literal sword, and he wasn't encouraging them to buy a literal sword. Uh, the first problem with that is that Jesus has said, take money, take traveler's bags, these are clearly literal, and then why would he segue so abruptly to something that is metaphorical? It doesn't make any sense. The second interpretation that many scholars make is that when Jesus says at the end of verse 38, that's enough, disciples have come and said, uh, here we have two swords among us, and Jesus is saying, when he says that's enough, he doesn't mean two are enough swords, but rather he means that's enough of that kind of talk. Uh, I meant a metaphorical sword, you're making it literal, that's not what I'm talking about. To me, that just doesn't make any sense. I think it's exactly what Jesus meant it to be. That's enough swords for what I'm talking about. Now let me, let me review verse, uh, verse 37. So he has just said, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. For, in other words, he's now about to explain why it's important for them to have one. For, the time has come for this prophecy about me to be fulfilled. And this was from Isaiah 53, 12, hundreds of years before, written about the Messiah. He was counted, meaning the Messiah was counted among the rebels. And so the picture is here that Jesus is, is about to be arrested he is about to face his accusers, and he must, in order to fulfill that prophecy, he must be seen as someone who's not a good and holy man, but someone who is a danger to the populace, someone who is a, uh, uh, more accurately seen as a bad man than a good man, someone who's more accurately seen as a criminal than someone who's a law-abiding person. And so when they came and said, two, we have two swords, I think what Jesus meant is two swords will be enough for me to be portrayed by my accusers as a kind of rebellious person, as a transgressor. Now this was even more vividly depicted when he was hung on a cross between two thieves. But for tonight's purposes, these couple of swords will provide the uh, impression that he's a bad man, that he's uh, like a rebel. So these two swords were needed to fulfill prophecy. Needed to fulfill prophecy. But they were needed for something else as well. Go back to, again, the previous verse, verse 36. But now take your money and a traveler's bag, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. And I would say that he is indicating they need a sword for this new mission. They need a sword for this new mission. They're all going to be scattered to the... Uh, all kinds of points on the globe. They're not going to be traveling together as a band of 12 like they were uh, to, the, to Judea and Galilee in Luke chapter 9. Uh, they're going to now be scattered to places as far flung as India, Ethiopia, Greece, Turkey, Spain, North Africa, even Russia, and probably traveling either alone or with just a couple of them over deserted roads they're unfamiliar with, uh, there are going to be wild animals, uh, even in Judea. There, was, uh, there were bears and wolves in those days. Thomas gets over to India, and now he's tangling with tigers and other animals. So there's, there's probably a necessity for swords just for uh, defense against wild animals, as well as for bandits that would uh, regularly stalk deserted stretches of road. And so I think what Jesus meant is, you're no longer going to have uh, a lot of Jewish communities that are going to 
uh, host you and take you in and so forth. You're going now into the Gentile world especially and praise God uh, that Jesus was sending his men to the Gentile world because many of us were Gentile. And I think exactly what he uh, meant was you're going to need this where you go, even if for nothing else, a deterrent. So there were, these swords were needed to fulfill prophecy, only needed a couple for that night. And secondly, they were needed for a new mission. And let me just point out one uh, curiosity. If Jesus meant that two swords were all he ever intended them uh, to have, then what he said about going out and buying a sword doesn't make any sense. Because only a couple hours have transpired between when Jesus said that and, and here at the garden, the sword stores aren't open. They wouldn't have had opportunity to get uh, their swords yet. So I think all of these disciples, uh, these apostles, when they began fanning out across the Roman Empire, I think they were all armed. That's a guess. So that was our first point. Jesus is telling these men to buy a sword. Now we're going to go back to the original text that we read where Jesus seems to be saying the exact opposite. Put your sword away. Uh, so Peter slices, we know from other gospel writers, this is Peter, slices off a man by the name of Malchus's ear. And Jesus says no more of this, and Jesus heals the man's ear. That seems very odd. If Jesus is telling them to be armed, and now he's uh, criticizing Peter for what he's doing. Let me explain what I think was happening here. He is correcting Peter for interfering with his mission, go to the cross, die for the sins of the world, not for being armed. He was criticizing Peter for interfering with his mission, not for being armed. And I think John bears this out in his gospel, uh, talking about this same incident. John chapter 18, verse 11. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering that the Father has given me? In other words, I, I'm here to carry this out. You're, you're in interfering. You're getting in the way of what the Father and I have planned. The other thing that I think we should uh, pay attention to that's recorded in Matthew, uh, Matthew 26, verse 52, again, same incident, and Jesus said this to Peter, Put away your sword. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. And then he goes on to say, look, if I needed help, if I needed protection, I've got access to thousands upon thousands of angels. I really wouldn't need your sword. And this is, and uh, many of you know that I grew up in a, a Anabaptist home and church and denomination. And, and this would have been pointed out to me as an indication that Jesus is saying, look, uh, life uh, lived by weaponry will always have these kinds of repercussions. I think rather what Jesus was, I think this is a kind of a proverb. And he's basically saying, look, violent people tend to die violently. Uh, if you're going to react when somebody offends you, when somebody hurts your feelings and you lash out, I mean, if you go back to our original text, the other disciples were waiting for Jesus to cue them. They say, we brought the swords, should we use them? Not Peter. He just dove right in and starts flailing away with a sword. I say, if, you, if this is how you're going to live your life, this is how you're probably going to die. Don't think he was saying so much, you should have a sword and you should never use it. But you should be very careful and very choosy about where you use it. Put your sword away. Now, the rest of our time, I want to spend talking about some of the uh, 
um, potential implications of these two conversations that Jesus had with his disciples. And I have this under a heading of loving neighbors with and without a gun. Loving neighbors with and without a gun. Now again, as I, I said, because of my upbringing, um, uh, I was very much steeped in the idea that um, a person who loved Jesus would, would never have a weapon, would never carry a weapon because that is a means of lethal force and we would never uh, want even to consider taking another life. And one of the foundational texts that were, was usually um, read for this would be Matthew chapter 5, where it talks about loving enemies. So let me take you there, Matthew 5, starting at verse 43. And of course, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. And there's actually a larger context, begins in verse 38, that talks about revenge. And so it's the idea that you shouldn't seek revenge if somebody slaps you in the cheek, for example. Uh, rather, you're going to turn your other cheek. If a soldier asks you to carry his gear for a mile, you don't just stop at a mile, you take it two miles. If it's your suit in court for your shirt, you give him your uh, coat as well, so forth. And so it's the idea of going much further than you're being asked to go. Don't resist an evil person. And gets down to verse 43, and Jesus says this. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And, and the argument goes something like this. Um, Jesus says that we are to love our enemies, and, and, and so we would, everybody else in the world, we would already be inclined to love, but the enemy would be a hard part. So somebody that thinks I've done something wrong to them, they don't like me, or I think they've done something wrong to me and I'm bitter toward them, uh, no, no matter what grievance there is between us, that as a Christian, I love them. And I, I describe this as the big love command in Scripture. Um, Jesus, the idea that Jesus doesn't need us to tell us to love anybody else, but he needs to tell us to love our enemies because we're not inclined to do this. And so as I was taught non-resistance, it means, again, that I don't have a gun and that I don't use a gun because, after all, I would only use a gun on an enemy, right? I would only pull a gun uh, to try to protect myself from an enemy. And certainly, that would not be showing love. Now, to take the scope of Jesus' life and ministry, we would have to say everything that Jesus did, everything that Jesus said, so his mission, his message, his ministry, his martyrdom, all of that was driven by, shaped by, um, embedded with love. Over and over again, Jesus talked about love one another. He says, tells his disciples, a new command I give to you, love one another, uh, greatest commandment, love, 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 love. All of that. I, I mean, even Jesus being sent here to earth uh, to die was a, a ministry of love. God so loved the world that he gave us one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Big love command, love your enemies. I, I want us to think more broadly and think about what I call a bigger love command. Now we're back in Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 37. 
And Jesus had been asked, what's the greatest commandment? So of all the laws, all the 613 laws and, and the law of Moses, what's the greatest commandment? Verse 37, Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Nothing matters more than that. So this was one of the fundamental problems of the Pharisees. They, they claimed to love God, but they, by how they loved people, they, they, it proved not to be the case. Because Jesus goes on to say, a second commandment is equally important, love your neighbors yourself. I don't like the way the New Living Translation renders that uh, because it literally says, Jesus says, this is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like the first. In other words, not just as important, it's equivalent. It has the same essence. Love your neighbors yourself. You can't say you love God with all you are and, and, and neglect your neighbor who has a need. It's just not possible. The, the lack of concern for the neighbor shows that you really don't love God like you say, say you do. These two cannot be separated. Love the Lord with all you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And I call this the bigger Love command, love all people. The enemies, uh, love your enemies focuses in on a slice of people. This focuses in on all people. And these were my thoughts again after the Bataclan killings, that on that night, loving neighbor, and I would have said neighbor would be these fa fans, not the three terrorists strapped with suicide vests. On that night, loving neighbor would have meant if I would have had the ability to take out a couple or all of the terrorists, that would have been a way to love neighbor. Three years ago, about 50 miles west of Phoenix, Arizona, a trooper by the name of Edward Anderson was driving down the highway when he saw a car uh, had gone down off the side of the road and had rolled. And he came to a stop, he called it in, and he started rushing toward the car there was a man uh, kneeling by the car, cradling a woman in his arms. The trooper didn't know that the woman was dead. The trooper didn't know that the man holding her uh, was a meth uh, addict. And also both uh, he and the woman were uh, alleged drug dealers and the man was an uh, illegal immigrant. And so while he's rushing to help and to rescue, all of a sudden the man pulls a gun and shot him in the shoulder. About the same time, there's a, 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 a civilian coming down the road. Uh, the man who's fired the gun at the officer, um, who's now down on the road, runs over, jumps on top of him, begins to uh, lift his head and smash his head repeatedly on the roadway. Uh, Thomas Yoxel is driving by, sees what's happening, pulls off the road, grabs a pistol out of a center console, which is legal in Arizona, and uh, goes in a, a stance and orders the man to get off the officer. The man continues to bash the officer's head against the road. Yoxel positions himself so he can um, uh, safely fire without hitting the officer, and he shoots the man. And the man falls back and away. Yoxel goes over to the officer, gets on top, radios in with his um, uh, with a trooper's radio, saying, "Officer down! Officer down!" When he sees out of the corner of the eye. The man he's just shot coming at him again. 
He still has his gun in his hand. He pulls it up and he fires and kills the man. Yaxel, um, of course, the ambulance comes and they take the trooper to the hospital. He's patched together and goes home uh, fine. Yaxel kept a low profile. He didn't want anyone to know who he was or what he had done for about two weeks. And then the police persuaded him to uh, make an appearance at a press conference. And as he stood there at that press conference, he's a 42-year-old guy. Um, he said, my primary concern was the life and wellness of Trooper Anderson first and foremost. There was no choice. And then he talked about how even though he may have saved Anderson's life, that he still took someone else's life. And as he's at that press conference, you see his body begin to shake and he becomes very emotional. And he says, it's difficult to reconcile. And he's described continuing to, in these last two weeks, replay that scene in his mind over and over and over. And he said this, he said, it, it hurts. He said, doing the right thing sometimes has a price and sometimes that price is severe. I wouldn't change it because another man gets to go home to his family. I wouldn't hesitate to respond in exactly the same fashion. But here's the thing. He did what he felt he had to do to, in, really in a way, love a neighbor, but he didn't go home at night and celebrate it. And he was still racked with the sense that I took someone else's life. And I think that tension is essential because without it, we lose the kind of across-the-board love that God has for all of his creation, all people that he has made. That's an example of, I think, a lethal force uh, demonstration of loving neighbor. But let's raise this possibility. Can use, using lethal force be unloving? Absolutely. There's a story in Luke chapter 9 that tells about Jesus and his disciples heading for a Samaritan village. And Jesus sent a number of the men on ahead for them to make preparations for their arrival, find places for them to stay, and so forth. Now, Samaritans and Jews, and of course all of Jesus and his men uh, were Jewish people, Samaritans and Jews didn't get along, together, uh, along well together, didn't like each other. And not only was it a problem that Jew Jesus and his men were Jewish, but they were on their way to Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judaism. And Samaritans didn't want any parts of them that day. And so they refused to put the welcome mat out. And James and John, who were nicknamed by Jesus the Sons of Thunder, probably because they had a short fuse, they say to Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven and burn them up? Now just think about that for a minute. These are Jesus' disciples, men that he is trying to groom to love, love one another and to love the people of the world that he's going to send them out as apostles to. And they want to rain down fire on a village and kill every living soul in that village, men, women, and children. Shall we call that fire from heaven? And Jesus rebukes them. And then we have the story that we just read about this morning with Peter, so quick to pull out his sword and start slashing away. A couple of bad examples. Here's a good one. 
If you look at the scriptures, if you look at the stories that church tradition gives us, in fact, if you look at any of the legends that have cropped up about any of the apostles who went out to these far-flung places in ministry after Jesus went back to heaven, you can't find one instance, not one, where these men who I think all were armed, not once they pulled, did they pull a sword. Not once did they try to defend themselves against an enemy. They were harassed, they were threatened, they were beaten, they were thrown into prison. Ten of the eleven that followed Jesus, and there were several others that were apostles, missionaries as well, um, Paul and we think probably Silas and Barnabas and maybe Apollos were all included in that band of apostle missionaries. Uh, but at least the ten of the eleven that were sent out were all executed because of promoting the gospel. Why in the world didn't even one of them even once draw a sword? I think the answer to that is because they had a gospel priority that mattered to them most. And what I mean by that is that they were more concerned about persuading people to put faith in Christ than in defending themselves and protecting themselves. And I want to suggest to you several gospel priorities that I think, well, I'll say it this way, they're my gospel priorities, but I think they're well-grounded in Scripture. The first one is that we as a people who follow Jesus are focused on sharing, not guarding. Sharing, not guarding. The month before last, um, March 2020, there were two million guns purchased in the United States. This is the, that's the second largest uh, num month for gun sales in all of our nation's history. The only other time was after President Obama was reelected and people were afraid that he was going to uh, impose additional gun regulations that would make it either harder or impossible to buy handguns. So why this big spike in gun sales in March of this year? Well, that was the beginning of the COVID-19 um, concerns. And we were seeing things we had never seen before. Closings of schools, closing businesses, people being asked to stay home, not go to work, not go out, clearing the stores of essentials like toilet paper, people at Costco, um, a line that's a block and a half, two blocks long, waiting to buy things, staples like toilet paper. And we're now getting to a point where people are starting to be uh, talk. There's talk about uh, the food supply chain uh, breaking down. My daughter was at Costco a couple of days ago, and there's, there was no chicken uh, anywhere to be found in the store. And I think what's happening, I think we all know what's happening, there is a fear People have a fear that if there's a shortage of supplies that occur, especially if it gets to the point of food, that it may lead to civil unrest and those without supplies might threaten me or my loved ones to get my supplies. We're followers of Jesus. We're the, we're the ones who follow the one who laid down his life and all for us. He, he laid everything down for us. He, he shared everything with us. Um, how, how we, Romans 8, 32, 
He who graciously gave up his life, how will he not share everything with us that we need? And how could we not in turn share everything that we have with others? Sharing, not guarding, I think is a gospel priority. Secondly, saving people, not possessions, I think is a gospel priority. Now, Pennsylvania laws would allow you to protect your possessions with lethal force. I wouldn't. If I came home and I found somebody carting furniture and television and stereo or cash out of my house, I wouldn't pull my gun. I mean, th think about it. it. Are you driving the same car today that you drove 20 years ago? Probably not. The Bible says all of this stuff wears out. It all, it's going to rust, it's going to rot, it's going to mold. I got a new computer last month. My old computer was nine years old and was starting to have some problems. And we're going to go through things and replace them. Imagine to threaten someone else's life over stuff that's not going to last. Anyway, saving people, not possessions. Let me just slide in a footnote there. Thomas Yoxel, the man who saved Trooper Anderson's life, when he was at the podium telling his story that day, he admitted, I assume because he thought media people would find out anyway, he admitted that 17 years earlier, he had had a felony theft arrest. Isn't that interesting? So he was stealing stuff from somebody. Had somebody pulled a gun, taken his life in the midst of that theft, Mr. Yoxel wouldn't have been available to save a life of a police officer 17 years later. Saving people, not possessions. People matter. Things don't. And a last gospel priority for me is dying, not killing. Dying, not killing. Pennsylvania law, again, allows self-defense. And before I tell you what I would do, let me say this uh, about and regarding women. Uh, and I know there are some women in our church that carry uh, a weapon with them. And I think that if you fear assault, abduction, rape, um, I would be the first to sanction you pulling that weapon. Most cases, a, woman, a woman's assailant is a, a male, and that puts her at an automatic disadvantage. Men are responsible to protect women, but aren't always around when needed. And I think a gun serves as a, a more than adequate stand-in. But for myself, um, I would not, if I carried a gun, I would not plan to protect myself. Uh, there's some pragmatic reasons. I'm older, I've lived a good life. Uh, my children are all grown. I know Christ, so I'll be with him <clears throat> there after this life as well. But my assailant, <clears throat> my adversary, this guy clearly isn't prepared to die. And in this moment, for, for me anyway, that man becomes my neighbor. And I wouldn't want to take that future chance from him to know Christ. Let me just wrap up with uh, some summary questions and then I also have some questions if you print out the um, sermon notes. I have some other questions to think about or discuss as well. But these are some summary questions uh, regarding the message. Help us, maybe some ways to help us determine 
how to love my neighbor as myself in this regard. Uh, first of all, to determine who is your neighbor. And I would suggest going back to uh, Luke chapter 10, 25, 37, which, where Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan in response to the question, who is my neighbor? You know, somebody was looking for a way out. I, there are certain people that I really don't want to love, I really don't want to help, I really don't want to share with, and I hope you'll tell me that's not my neighbor. And Jesus, of course, tells him about the person who acted lovingly. He didn't know the person that was in need, but he loved him by acting lovingly. And maybe that can help you sort out who is your neighbor. Is a loved one that my, is a loved one my neighbor if my loved one is being threatened by someone? Is a stranger in the Turkey Hill or in a community park my neighbor if I see them, even though I don't know them, I see them being threatened by someone? Maybe, uh, maybe there's a, a, a robber, someone's at Turkey Hill robbing the store, or maybe in the park an estranged boyfriend or husband is threatening uh, either to take a child or threatening a girlfriend. Uh, if these neighbors are in jeopardy, is it loving? Is it loving for me to come to their aid, even with deadly force? And then lastly, could a neighbor ever be the one who is threatening me? Might I see that person as a neighbor? If someone steals your stuff, does the someone or the stuff matter most to me? And what, if any, responsibility does a Jesus follower who is trying to neutralize a threat have to the person who is a threat? Let me read that again. What, if any, responsibility does a follower of Jesus who is trying to neutralize a threat have to the person who is actually the threat themselves? <laughs> Basically, this sermon was designed to get you thinking a lot with what is in the text. So many times we make decisions, I think, because of things that people have told us uh, and we tend to, I think many of us, I, I'm that way, tend to create echo chambers around us where I listen to the people that, he, that say the things that I'm familiar with or I'm accustomed to or I believe. And I think we have to force ourselves again and again to go back to the Word of God, to the Word of God, to the Word of God, say, what does it say? And with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, determine not what the scholar says, not what my best friend says, not what my, all my friends say, not even what my pastor says, but what does God say? And shape my life and build my life and live my life and love God and other people based on how it tells me to love God and other people. Let's pray. Father, um, the subject matter this morning matters a great deal because we're talking about lives. We're talking about people that have been made in your image that you love with an everlasting love. And we want to be wise. We live in a country where there's far more safety than some people enjoy around the world, than many people enjoy around the world. And perhaps we don't have to wrestle with these things quite to the degree that some Christians might in some places in the world. Nevertheless, we should know what you say. Nevertheless, we should know what you think. We should know how you want us to live. And one of the things that I would pray for, Lord, is a graciousness, that we might have a graciousness. The kinds of things we're talking about this morning, 
people people have strong opinions and strong feelings about that go a couple of different directions. And I pray that there would be a great deal of um, kindness shown toward those that we might disagree with or that we would um, see that disagree with us. And in all things, Lord, we might carry out as faithfully as we can the admonition to, yes, love our enemies, but to love our neighbor no matter who they are. For Jesus' sake, amen. Keystone, thanks for worshiping with us this morning. There are a handful of ways that you can take action steps. Uh, At the end of this time, there's a little button on your uh, screen if you are live streaming that's called Live Prayer. And there are people who are waiting to be able to pray for you, to intercede to God on your behalf, and would be excited for you to share your prayer requests with them. Also, if you go to keystonechurch.org slash compassion, there are two ways that you might be able to interact with us. One, we are poised and ready and eager to be able to help serve in whatever way you might find needs. And so if you have needs, our encouragement for you is to let us know. And let us know sooner rather than later before it becomes quite the emergency. If you click on the tab that says, I need help, you can let us know a little bit about your situation. And somebody from our compassion ministry will reach out um, to be able to determine how best we can serve you. Likewise, uh, if you are uh, on that page and you're thinking, I, I want to help, uh, click that link and say um, what you might be able to do. And somebody from our compassion ministry will reach out to give you an opportunity to serve, whether in Keystone or in our community. The third thing, and just as a thank you for those of you who've continued to be faithful in helping Keystone continue on its mission. You believe in what we're doing and you are backing us financially. Uh, thank you so much. You can go to keystonechurch.org slash give uh, to be able to give online, or you can use our Church Center app um, and create a a one-time gift or a recurring gift. For those of you who are continuing to mail checks in uh, to the church office, thank you as well. Uh, Our encouragement would be to make sure that you send it to 6 Peckway Drive, Paradise PA 17562 uh, for us to be able to get that as soon as possible. Thanks so much. There's one more uh, way that you can continue to interact with that, and that's by spending this last little bit of time interacting with the questions that Pastor Keith shared. One of the things that we've heard most about families enjoying this experience was that immediately after the message, being able to ask questions, encourage discussion, and see how the Lord continues to work in your life to encourage you through uh, this text. Thanks so much again, and we'll look forward to seeing you next Sunday.